And when I go into interviews, if people are really bothered by my baseball hat, um, it's usually a good measure of how important they think they are. This is the Pangea Podcast, and I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff. There are only a handful of journalists who focus on global health issues, and even fewer who have the experience and background of my guest, Tom Paulson. Tom was with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer from 1987 until the paper went online only in 2009. He then covered global health and development for Humanosphere, an NPR blog based at Seattle's KPLU. Humanosphere officially became independent at the start of this year. With the project at its six-month mark, it provided a good excuse for me to chat with Tom and learn about how he went from construction worker, seriously, to journalist, how he stumbled upon the global health beat, and the questions that still draw him to these issues today. Oh, and you'll get to hear a bit more about Tom's baseball cap next, uh, so keep listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so first question I have for you um, is, you know, obviously in preparing for this, I was taking a look at the Humanosphere site, and um, one of the first things you notice when you're looking for author information um, is the image of you in the cap. And if you do a little digging, and I'm not saying that I necessarily did this, but there are a couple uh, photographs with you wearing a baseball cap. And I mm-hmm. think it's the same one. So I kind of wanted to ask you, what's what's the deal with the cap? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I'm not... Uh, it, it's It's basically just... I guess it's become sort of a signature for me when I don't wear my cap, which is, you know, at formal events and so forth. Uh-huh. Uh, actually don't even recognize me, so it's a great way to be incognito. Um, but uh, no, I just, it started out when I was younger. I just, uh, you know, I don't pay much attention to my parents, I guess, and um, didn't have to comb my hair, and you know, it kind of shaded my eyes from the light. And I just, <laughs> like, it's like hats. And I, I used to work in construction before I was a reporter. So maybe it's a redneck thing. Uh, I just feel comfortable doing it. And the only other thing I would say, uh, so yeah, I don't always wear hats, you know, when it's inappropriate. Right. But, um, the, uh, I like them. I feel comfortable wearing it. I guess like some people, you know, like certain kinds of shoes or pants or shirts. Um, but the other thing I found just accidentally is it's, it's a very, it's a fairly good barometer for measuring someone else's sense of self-importance. And when I go into interviews, if people are really bothered by my baseball hat, um, it's usually a good measure of how important they think they are. Who's um, Who's been really bothered by it in the past? Well, um, uh, high officials, uh, uh, usually from other countries. Seattle, nobody cares. Everybody's fine. It's like we're all uh-huh. very relaxed about how we wear uh, what we wear, but um, uh, yeah, no, I would say uh, you know uh, officials meeting in the, some official capacity, and I've had people ask me, you know, I had a, once the editor of uh, the British journal, scientific journal, The Nature. I was talking to him, and he had to—I could tell—it bothered him, and and he wanted to ask me. Finally, asked me, you know, what's a like you did? What's the deal with a hat? 
and I said, I don't know, what's the deal with your tie? <laughs> and what do you say to that? End of conversation. Um, <laughs> I, I guess he wasn't taking your questions after that. No, no, we were fine. He laughed. Oh, okay. It was just, uh, um, I mean, end of that particular line. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Oh, that's no. that's funny. That's yeah, and I guess that's not necessarily someone you'd expect to to get upset. And not to belabor it, but I once had a editor at what Seattle Post Intelligencer, where I used to be a reporter before it ended as a printed paper. And once I went out to interview the governor or something, and he was saying I needed to dress better. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, they won't respect you if you don't, you know, dress better. And I said, I'm a reporter. They don't respect me anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's and that's, I guess, why a lot of people not get into this business, but certainly find it attractive um, about about journalism is, you know, you don't if you're not on um, certain beats, you know, you don't have to be wearing a suit every day. Yeah. And I like wearing suits every once in a while, but uh-huh. No, I actually don't give it that much thought, and in Seattle, nobody seems to care. So, and so I had no idea you were a construction worker. I was I was checking out your LinkedIn profile, and I, I didn't see that there. Um, but uh, but I did see that um, your undergrads in um, biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very brief. Uh, it's too boring to go into much detail. But I was basically uh, going to go into medical school. I was uh, come from a long line of doctors, and was going to do that. And so I studied chemistry, which I actually really liked. Everybody thought that was weird, but I, I loved chemistry. I thought it was a lot of fun. And then near the end of my undergraduate uh, uh, experience, I decided I didn't want to go into medicine. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I had been working since high school as a carpenter. And so I was pretty good. And so when I graduated, I started a construction company in Seattle. And we built homes for a while. And, you know, uh, I just... Did it and then missed kind of missed science and I missed uh, the intellectual side to uh, science and mm-hmm. so without going into a lot of I mean I lived in my car for a while I was a ski bum I did a lot of goofy things but I ended up basically uh, quitting construction uh, and going and wanting to become a science reporter a science journalist and I went to Johns Hopkins and studied writing and science writing and got lucky and got in eventually ended up in a at the seattle pi as a science reporter so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you were there for for quite a while um how how did you end up on the global health beat well and that's a nice segue i think from the science angle and it kind of gets to the gates foundation uh, uh yeah but but I, hold your horses on that because i obviously have a lot of questions to to ask you on that no, I know. But it, the one thing I was going to say, because I was just explaining it the other day, is so I got onto global health by virtue of being the science and medical reporter in Seattle for the mm-hmm. PI. Mm-hmm. And I was covering a, a small organization nobody had ever heard about called PATH, which now everyone's heard about. It's sort of a, you know, a, almost an arm of the Gates Foundation, and it's huge, and it's yeah. a great a great organization, but I was just writing these stories about them every once in a while because they made little gizmos for the third world and uh, or what was called the third world at the time and and uh, you know it was it was kind of a fun story, but it was all science and technology and then the Gates Foundation uh, started rising up in the nineties. nobody was paying that much attention to them because at the time the Gates Foundation was 
well, Bill Gates was an, uh, a ruthless uh, monopolist in a fight with the federal government, and nobody thought of him as a humanitarian. He started this foundation, and everybody just thought it was a PR move. No one took it seriously, frankly, in the media. And uh, I wasn't really covering Gates or philanthropy, but I started noticing through PATH they were giving more and more money, incredible amounts of money, to children's vaccination. Mm-hmm. So I just started asking about it. And so by accident, really, because I was writing about their vaccine technologies at PATH, I just kind of stumbled onto this thing that was growing and frankly was not being covered by the media very well, the the new Gates Foundation, which was actually two foundations when it started. And, uh, And it's growing influence in global health. And frankly, I didn't know anything about global health at the time. But I could see it was a lot of money, and it was very scientific and technological originally. Mm-hmm. And and in the context of Seattle, obviously now Seattle's this big global health hub. Um, you know, you mentioned there was Path and Gates Foundation. I mean, were there other organizations or? Yeah, well, and actually, that's that's interesting. Uh, I think it's an interesting kind of untold story, or maybe. Uh, disguise story because the Gates Foundation now sort of sucks all the air out of the room in terms of global health in Seattle certainly and maybe anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Seattle had a long tradition of activities in international health before the Gates Foundation and it's partly why PATH was here. PATH has been in Seattle since the late 1970s. There's also Seattle Biomedical Research Institute. Uh, the University of Washington it, has been and is uh, one of the leaders in HIV research in in developing countries. And uh, the CDC, this is one of the top places for epidemiological uh, research and, and public health stuff. So um, there are all these people here already, but it wasn't really recognized as such until the Gates Foundation came in and basically made PATH huge and... Um, but yeah, there was already the talent. A lot of it was already here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, uh, you know, just the Gates Foundation kind of did a lot of the public affairs work around. I mean, obviously they were giving tons of money as well, and you know, creating new organizations and projects where they didn't exist. But well, and I think driving policy, which is uh, you know both good and bad depending on people's point of view. I mean mm-hmm. they. They aren't just writing checks. I mean, they're determining what we do. And I think it's fair to say they, the Gates Foundation largely can be given credit for resurrecting children's vaccination globally. And to some extent, malaria research. Uh, both of those were pretty decrepit in the late 90s. Uh, children's vaccinations were on a decline worldwide, even though there had been a lot of progress through by UNICEF. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, donors weren't funding it anymore. People weren't interested in it. Vaccines are boring. And so the Gates Foundation sort of revamped that and has made vaccines uh, almost sexy. And uh, Seattle is now one of the top uh, locations for malaria research. And um, and it isn't just that Gates is funding stuff here. But, um, no, they, they've... Uh, They've made a big impact in terms of deciding what the global health agenda is, and they've changed it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, let, let's uh, let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, I guess we got into this on how you ended up covering all of this, and uh, you were on the science beat. You know, global health now, and we've had conversations before this conversation um, about, you know, global health being considered part of, uh, you know, health desk when it comes to news coverage or science. And I know you have some pretty strong feelings on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think to be fair, uh, well, before I sort of criticize what I see as the ghettoization of global health as an issue, or maybe the celebration, the distorted celebration of global health, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, it's kind of the same way I got into this. I started out as a science guy. I was interested in, uh, I was, I thought there were, uh, these amazing technological solutions for problems, diseases of poverty and for poverty, uh, you know, and I just thought this is great. You know, all we've got to do is throw some money at this and, and, and diseases of poverty are going to diminish and people's lives are going to get better and, you know, we'll, we'll lift all boats by basically, uh, doing all these health interventions. Now, to some degree, that's, that's true. It, it's made a big difference. We've made some major gains in, in terms of health because of these projects. But the problem of poverty and really the problems that we see in poor countries are systemic problems and they're problems that go way beyond health. And so as a reporter, basically, I've evolved and I've learned um, that, you know, we just can't, you can't look at the problem of poverty solely as a health issue. It distorts it. It basically makes you ignore a lot of the other drivers of poverty, which has to do with politics or economic imbalances, um, you know, all these other factors that really drive inequity. And, you know, so global health, in my opinion, uh, and what I've learned, starting out as focused on health and science and technology, uh, it's kind of, I would say, parallel with the Gates Foundation, which I've been covering. I think that they have also realized that these are not simple problems. These are complicated problems that are embedded within you know, systems. And so global health to me now as a reporter, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to emphasize the fact that these health interventions are great, but they have to be done within the the broader context of the fight against poverty. And you can't ignore the politics. You can't ignore the social, cultural, uh, economic issues that uh, also drive poverty. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, so you asked about news coverage and yeah. I think, Problem is news. We're, we're limited uh, by necessity in the news business. We can't write a huge essay or a PhD thesis. We have to focus on one or two things, and so we tend to ghettoize our coverage, and we tend to focus on a health issue. We just let's just write about vaccinating. Let's just write about malaria, or let's just write about maternal health. And um, it's very. I'm not saying it's an easy problem to solve, but I think that we all in this, in the news business, we all need to see that global health as a subset of the broader development agenda. And it's not the other way around. It's not global health is the driver of development. I think that's how I started covering it. And I think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess to just kind of, 
bring things to their most basic level. So, you know, what desk would you put it at? I mean, at Humanosphere, you obviously have the benefit of um, not having some of those constraints of a traditional uh, media organization. But, you know, where, where would you place it if you had to place it in that more traditional structure? Well, um, my guess, my answer, it's going to sound like kind of a weaselly answer, but I think the traditional structure is wrong. So I wouldn't place it within the traditional structure of the mainstream news media. I don't think, I think the mainstream news media structure is, at least in this country, uh, is designed to keep us, uh, parochial and not focused on international issues. And so I don't think there's a place for it right now. And I think, like you said, I'm, I have the luxury at Humanosphere, it's, our focus is basically to fill that gap that exists within the mainstream news media. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's, you know, there's efforts out there to fill this gap. NPR has this, the new global health beat paid for by the Gates foundation, the guardian, actually a lot of the gap filling in the news media is paid for by the the Gates foundation, which is a little bit awkward, but well, um, well, I wanted to ask you more about that because um, you wrote that, that post um, earlier this year um, about the Gates Foundation's relationship uh, with the media. I thought it was, you know, really, really thoughtful and um, pretty nuanced. So I hope in, I guess, uh, trying to capture the essence of it here, I'm not trying to sort of um, simplify it. But, you know, in the post, uh, my understanding was you explained that the Gates Foundation, um, you know, would like to encourage and focus on success stories. That was one of the things you said. And then you pointed out that they want journalists to cover what is working when it comes to U.S. foreign aid. And they've spelled this out in, in certain grants. And then at one point, and, and this is a direct quote from your post, you said, while well-intentioned, any media organizations who accept those marching orders, and many did, arguably uh, neglected some basic tenets of journalism. Mm-hmm. So, are you are you saying there that you know media organizations and you just pointed out you know how many of them do accept money from Gates shouldn't accept that money? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there shouldn't be a quid pro quo, uh, meaning there shouldn't be sort of this condition that um, you and I, I don't think it's the Gates Foundation's responsibility to mm-hmm. to, to not have this condition it's sort of up to the media organization to make sure they make it clear to the gates foundation that when they accept the money they're not going to just do positive stories they're not just going to do success stories they're going to they're going to cover the news because that's their job and they know they know how to do it better than the gates foundation Mm -hmm. so my point is just that um some organizations uh, n- not all of them. It, it isn't that they shouldn't accept money from the Gates Foundation. I think it's great, and I said this also in that story. It's great that the foundation is supporting media, because uh, media is falling apart. We don't have a good business model, and a lot of these issues aren't being covered, and the foundation legitimately wants to see more stories covered about global health and development. The, uh, what I think, I don't have the story up in front of me, but I think what I was talking about is that uh, what they need to make very clear, uh, any media organization that accepts this, is that they're going to do failure stories. They're going to do negative stories. They're going to do whatever they think is necessary to advance public understanding of the issues. And that just focusing, it's fine for the Gates Foundation to focus on positive stories and success stories. 
Um, and I know why they want to do that. And it's motivated by a good impulse, but that's not the media's job. And, and we, it's dangerous if we start accepting those marching orders, um, that what we're trying, we, we start becoming advocates then for a either a particular program or a point of view. And, you know, we need to basically, our job is to be independent, um, you know, we're not just providing information and we're not advocating for particular programs. We're, we're, uh, occasionally watchdogs. We do analysis. We try to ask the questions that nobody else is asking. And, uh, you know, we just try and write about reality to the best of our ability. Let's talk about, um, your own me organization, Humanosphere, which, I guess we're at the six-month point now since it became independent from uh, KPLU. How have things been going from your perspective? Uh, pretty well. I mean, unfortunately, you know, when NPR and KPLU here in Seattle wanted to not give me money anymore, I had to uh, take on all of these other jobs in addition to uh, the fairly fast-paced, demanding job of uh, feeding the beast uh, of the news blog every day. Mm-hmm. That's plenty of work. In addition to that, now I've had to get involved in business development. I've had to uh, deal with applying for nonprofit status. So you mean uh, you've had to take on other jobs um, related to running the, the business side of the blog? Yeah, I'm not okay. getting anymore i'm not kidding <laughs> i don't have other jobs but i mean I'm, i was I'm, like are you are you waiting tables on the side or something tom like i had a time but no i mean i i had to uh you know i had to re uh apply because i was no longer part of the nonprofit organization news organization kplu and npr i had to reapply i had to deal with that and and the irs uh in terms of Granting journalists and news organizations nonprofit status is a little sketchy, or it has been. And so I have to take that fairly seriously and really make the case. I have to do business development. I have to deal with fundraising. Um, I'm trying to grow staff. Uh, there's some website um, changes that I've made, most of which are invisible but have been very important uh, to improving traffic and uh, all the web stuff. I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. I've had to learn stuff. That but are I, you talking like SEO kind of stuff? or? Yeah, and, and dealing with search engine optimization right. and how we rank on uh, on Google and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I didn't have to do that before. Somebody else was, was doing that. So I'm doing everything and, um, and trying to write. And fortunately, I've uh, hired uh, Tom Murphy there, who's based in Boston, who's great to uh write uh with me so that's making the writing bur- the content burden a little bit less but it's tough it's you know it's journalism is a very difficult business right now and i'm having to start over on my own and i'm trying to write about a topic that is kind of it's a little bit of a hard sell in terms of reaching uh the general audience but my goal uh, we're fairly successful, I think, from a statistic standpoint, traffic and so forth. And uh, inf- I guess there's influence on the blogosphere. I'm, I, I do pretty well, but um, it's a constant sprint every day. Mm-hmm. And 
my, and we're not there yet. My goal is to see these kind of stories that we're covering every day on Humanosphere start uh, bleeding out into the mainstream media in the United States, and because these are these are very big issues, and we're just kind of slamming it every day, and we're writing about stuff nobody else is writing about. Yeah, traffic-wise. Um did you take a hit, you know, not being part of KPLU? Have you recovered some of those visitors, or how, how's that been going more specifically? Yeah, we took a hit because when we moved away from, I mean, we were part of uh, KPLU's news presence on the web, and so when we became our own organization, it was like starting over, and so traffic dropped dramatically, and that was kind of scary. And But we're now, you know, I guess – we're more than twice the traffic we were when I was at KPLU and it's growing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's growing every week and, and, uh, the numbers, I guess I'm not supposed to broadcast the numbers too much. I don't know why, but, but I guess I need to find out the business aspect of that, but we're doing well. Traffic's up substantially, more than a hundred percent. And, um, since we left KPLU and, uh, there's some mechanical reasons for that and hopefully right. there are content reasons for that. Uh, and then there's also apparently something called influence on the web, and we're highly we're considered highly influential. Is, uh, is that based on like a certain ranking or? Well, yeah, I don't know because you have to pay for people to do this. But I've been told by folks at the Gates Foundation, the media folks there, and also some of the media people at USAID that they consider me highly influ- influential as a online news source. And they they usually tell me that, or they they've told me that in a, in a way that they don't. It, it's not that they don't always like it because <laughs> influential in the sense that you know we drive these stories uh, and other media pick up our stuff because we're read by other media and we're read by policymakers and so I think what it means. Uh, I haven't paid for the analysis. I guess you, like I said, you have to pay for it. It's a social media marketing function. Um. But it basically means important people are reading you and they can track that. They can kind of see who looks at the site and then what happens and who retweets stuff or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one of the things you've started doing now, which obviously as a fellow podcaster I'm excited about, is, you know, the podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I like what you're doing with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and, yeah, and that's – that's Ansel Hurst is a journalist here in Seattle, young guy, and it was his idea, and he's come on board, and he's doing it, and he has, uh, you know, a very informal way of doing it, which sort of worries me sometimes. I'm afraid he's going to forget to edit out the obscenities, but um, no, it's fun. I mean, we're learning a lot, and you know, as you know, audio is very different from other forms of media, and I don't think we've quite figured it out. I'm not. Actually, NPR, when I worked for NPR, they were trying to make me into an audio reporter. And uh, I either sounded like I was on methamphetamine or that I was asleep. Apparently. <laughs> like, yeah. I usually start out asleep, and then they'd say, you need to sound more excited. And then I, then they're like, okay, no, that's too excited. And so that, I'm, I'm, that is, Yeah, that's one of the things, you know, and I think we're always most critical of anything that, you know, if you look at a photograph of yourself or you read something you've written, you're always your worst critic. But... Yeah, when you play back, I mean, I also I think I found I sound so unexpressive or whatever. So I do try to be conscious about 
you know, conveying, you know, more emotion than I guess I would otherwise just because it's, it's more interesting for listeners, I think. So, you know, yep. we'll, we yep, figure yep. it out together. You have that nice South African accent and I just have this boring, big <laughs> Northwest monotone. So. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it helps a little, but, but it's not everything. You, you also want to make sure the content is good. So you get, you know, interesting guests that, that do a lot of the talking and you just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's a strategy. No, but, um, over the next six months or, um, or year or so, what, what are some of the top line goals you have for Humanosphere? Well, uh, I need to raise more money, so if any of your listeners want to donate to independent journalism covering global health and aid development, you know, give me a call. Um, and <laughs> and I haven't done that yet. I'm sort of, my board is sort of freaked out because I've been so busy just doing journalism and business development that I haven't gotten to the nonprofit side, which is all about fundraising. So I have to get serious about that. And that'll be odd and it's sort of an inherent conflict of interest because you're going to the people you cover mostly to, uh, get money. And so we'll see how that goes. And, um, so that's a big challenge, uh, ahead. And, um, I want to grow staff a little bit. I've been working on that and I don't, I'm trying not to do what I think I see a lot of organizations doing, uh, which is to sort of have a lot of, uh, a lot of contributors and to use a lot and basically and not pay people and just kind of bring in a, you know, have a big free for all and have tons of contributors and, and it looks good. I think it can look good to a lot of people, but my approach is to try and concentrate on just building very slowly high quality reporting and, and analysis on these issues. And, um, so, I want to grow staff, but I probably just only want to grow it by a handful more people, which again takes more money. And I think, but I think it wouldn't take much to really break some new ground if we had enough people at Humanosphere, um, covering, and we'll have to alter the website to do that. But if we're covering these issues, really covering them, I mean, right now it's kind of run and gun and we're picking and choosing and we're not covering everything. And, uh, but if we can read. Was, was there like a story over the last few months or something that you, you saw and you thought like, ah, you know, this should have come from Humanosphere? Oh yeah. I see those every day or every week maybe. Um, what, what kind of stuff or, or who's, who's writing at him? I guess I'm curious. Well, um, I, well, I, Basically, why I think there's, well, and it gets to why I think there's an opportunity for a site like Humanosphere or other sites like this, um, that cover these things in the United States is that these issues are covered in other media in, in Britain and in Europe. And for some reason, they're not covered by the American media. And I think it's a mistake. I think people are interested in it. I think young people are especially interested in, in global issues. And I think the media is making a mistake in its strategy, which is Based, I mean, ABC News, for example, got a big grant from the Gates Foundation uh, to do global health reporting. And they did it kind of dumb. I mean, they basically went to the Gates Foundation. They said, what should we cover, which isn't very independent. And I wrote about that, and I made fun of them. But they got, you know, million dollars from the Gates Foundation, and the Gates Foundation said it wanted, again, success stories in global health. And they did some stories, and um, and then they 
didn't reapply for the grant. They didn't want the Gates money, and they were told, I'm, I'm told this off the record, but I'm pretty sure it's true, is uh, ABC didn't want to do Global Health Stories because they didn't see uh, the viewership. They just didn't, it wasn't worth it for them. So they didn't, they didn't ask for money to, to repeat the grant from the Gates Foundation. So what's interesting to me is that I think it was because of the way they covered it. To me, it wasn't that people aren't interested in global issues and global health and development issues. It's that they covered it in these sort of tired old, uh, traditional ways. Like here are these nice Americans who are coming in helping these people of color to not die. And you know, and it's just these standard, a standard narrative. And what we're trying to do, what I think is a great, and I see this in the British press and in other uh, alternative media mostly, is we need to cover this the aid and development world just like we would cover anything else. And, uh, you know, with criticism, with analysis, with controversy, with goofy stories, funny things, you know, let's make this interesting. And so I really think there's a great opportunity here. And uh, I don't see it in much in the United States media, in the American media. I do see this; these kinds of stories are done at the Guardian, um, you know, other and some, you know, actually the blogosphere in the United States, the aid blogosphere, has some really great stories and stuff. So we can make these things interesting to people. I think there's a great opportunity, but it's just it's going to require a new approach to um, covering aid development. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you talked about everything that's involved with just keeping the lights on and keeping things running and everything. Um, do you enjoy kind of wearing the entrepreneurial hat? Well, you know, I like wearing hats. We talked about <laughs> that. You do like wearing hats. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I, I was a building contractor. I ran a small business. I'm familiar with the 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 tension but also the excitement and the freedom of running your own thing and you know i uh, we'll see it may it may not work um i'm a little bit you know skating on thin ice right now still with this operation but it's my own operation to succeed or fail on my own and um yeah i i like it i think it's fun and i couldn't do it if i uh, didn't like the subject matter i'm i'm actually fascinated with with the discussion around aid and development the real discussion i think the standard stories put out by you know organizations like even the gates foundation or path or whatever they're not really getting at what this is really about uh, because what what it's really about is more controversial more political uh, there's some real fights uh, power fights going on and so to me the real story there is really interesting and and it's a great opportunity i just think we got to figure out a way to cover it and i you know and i there's there's other groups i think i see popping up trying to do this small journalism organizations uh, that and so I, I don't think it has to be just humanosphere I, i'm hoping there's going to be sort of a uh, community of journalists who cover this more and more in a realistic way. Pangea is one. You're mm-hmm. doing Thank you so much, Tom. I and it should be noted that I did not pay you to say that. No. Mm-hmm. And there's another group in Seattle who are trying to do it in a slightly different way, the Glo- Seattle Globalist. Uh, yeah, I like their work a lot. 
Right, cut the language project. And they're doing, they're trying to accomplish the same thing. There's Tom Murphy, who writes for me, also works with uh, Mark Goldberg, who you've talked to before. Uh, they do a news service that I use, Don's Digest. Yeah, and Mark's got you in Dispatch. Yeah, so. Pretty I, good as well. We, I mean, we all kind of compete at one level, but we, we should also try to figure out how to collaborate, because I think the more this gets covered, the more we're all going to succeed. And I, so I'm excited when I see uh, other people trying to do it. Mark, Mark, and Mark's great, and Tom, of course, I've sort of half gotten him over onto Humanosphere, but he's still doing View from the Cave, and and then there's all the academic bloggers out there who write great things. And so I see that there's a, a new emerging narrative around aid and development. It's just not in the, it's not really in the media yet. Mm-hmm. Well, what um, what is that narrative that you think isn't being captured as well in the in the mainstream media? Well, I think what's not captured very well. I think there's a number of things, but I would say the biggest thing that's not captured is that this is a fight. This is a or, or maybe a contest or a, or a, what's the right word? I don't know. Making it sound dramatic, but it's not a charitable enterprise. It's not. And you say this being. Well, uh, reducing poverty, reducing inequity, um, uh, making the world a better place. Okay. That's people, what I, people involved in those activities. Yeah, and, I, and that's what we're writing about. And the thing is, is everybody wants to write about it as if it's always this win-win uh, equation, and it's not. I mean, to, at a certain level, we're trying to take money away from rich people and rich countries and we're trying to even the playing field and that's going to be difficult it's not uh, there there aren't always win-win solutions to these problems and they're they're highly political um they involve inequity is often by design it's not an accident of nature and so the thing is 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 uh these just like when you're talking about when we cover a political contest or we we cover the fight between uh, tech companies, Microsoft versus Apple. We don't pretend they're all just trying to, you know, get us the best computer. Mm-hmm. It, but, but that's the way in development is written about, as if everybody's in a club and they're all working together. And it's bullshit, frankly. I mean, you know, they are fighting against some big interests. And, uh, you know, I just want to see it written about that way. It'd be a lot more fun. People would be way more interested in it because everybody likes, you know, everybody likes the uh, contest side of things. And this is really the biggest missing piece in the aid narrative is that this is actually a battle. This is a battle. And there are people fighting uh, over power and turf and, and you know, there are some win-win things there, but you know, a lot of it's not. And I just would like to see it written about more realistically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're trying to do it with a good sense of humor. Uh, I mean, sense of humor is important. Humanosphere is partly, you know, one of our main marching orders is to be irreverent and have fun. So we're not just, you know, trying to write about the battle. We're, um, you know, we're trying to also have fun and point out the goofiness, just like everything humans do. Definitely. To go back to, I mean... What's your response to the question of uh, why people aren't writing about aid with that type of nuance and the, maybe the personalities and you know politics that make people disagree? Well, that's an interesting question. I think the uh, 
I don't know the answer. I mean, I, 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 I have my theory and I think to try to sort of describe it, I've often thought if I ever, you know, have the time or maybe the humanosphere goes belly up, I can get a contract to write a book about how this, how global health and, and where we are today on aid development has emerged. Although probably it's, there's tons of books been written about it. I just don't know. But my edit, my, my view of the reason why that narrative is frequently ignored is that to some degree the aid and development efforts have all come out of this charity framework or mindset or I don't know what the right word is, but you know, we were doing all this, we said we were doing all this, even foreign aid, American foreign aid, we were doing it to help poor people out of the goodness of our heart. And that sort of has evolved out of the fact that a lot of aid and charity work was originally done not by governments and private, you know, tech and, uh, billionaires, but by uh, church organizations. So there is this tradition that uh, I, I, would, I guess you'd call it a narrative tradition that this is a charitable enterprise. And so everything, everybody wants to talk that way and they all want to present themselves as if this is being done just to help poor people and it's a noble enterprise and so forth. And, you know, there is a lot, a lot of it is, you know, that's true for a lot of people and a lot of what motivates a lot of people, I would say, in this field, and that interests me. But I think it's, uh, like I said, it's it's a tired narrative. People don't buy it uh, or they're bored with it. And uh, what we need to do is, is add to that narrative the, uh, you know, the more nuts and bolts things about, you know, foreign aid is often used as a tool of, American politics by the government. Uh, philanthropists are not always good people and not, not always really trying to help poor people. And, you know, I mean, let's just, and, and a lot of things don't work and, you know, let's just stop. We need to move away from this, uh, as a charity story. And it, it should almost, uh, I think the best rule of thumb, what I tell some of the writers who work for me is just, it's not quite right, but try to think of covering uh, the aid and development stories as if you were covering a business story, you know, because there's always going to be people competing. There's always going to be, uh, you know, interests, somebody, somebody's interests are trying to be advanced and that's taken for granted in a business story. Um, and it's usually ignored in the aid and development stories. So if you just kind of shift and think of aid and development, and global health, if you think of it as an industry, it isn't quite really, but if you think of it that way as a journalist, I think that may help you, you know, make this stories a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's finish out with a quick question. So you've been a journalist on this beat for a long time, as we've touched on and discussed. Who has been your most uh, memorable person to interview? Hmm, that's a good question. It's it's a quick question, but I guess requires a lot of you know a lot of thought on your part. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, well, I've interviewed a lot of people, and as a journalist, especially as an online journalist, I seem to have no long term memory anymore. So I'm trying to remember who who. Uh, I mean, I've interviewed Muhammad Yunus, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, you know. 
Let's see, I'm trying to think who. I, well, I actually, probably, I would say, because this comes up, <laughs> the most memorable interview I've had recently is President uh, Paul, the President of Rwanda, Paul Kagame. Mm. And I was in Rwanda a while ago, and with a bunch of other journalists, uh, with a group. Well, I think you're going to be a part of that, right? The International Reporting Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going on their Zambia trip uh, next month. Yeah, they're great, and you'll enjoy it. It's very, it's a lot of fun. But um, and and they they organize really great trips. So I was there with them in Rwanda uh, more than a year ago, and we were writing about many things that Rwanda is considered very successful at in aid development. And Rwanda is a beautiful country, and of course has had a troubled past, and so it's a it's considered a big success story, and it was getting a lot of coverage. Um, but I, what I was interested in was uh, I wanted to talk to Kagami. We each got one question when we interviewed him. And um, I was interested in the fact that despite him being viewed as a, a success, his, his, his administration in Rwanda as a big success for aid and development, it's also regarded by many groups as a very authoritarian country, especially when it comes to press freedoms. And so mm. I asked him, you know, I was given one question. It's always tricky when you're only given one question as a journalist because you're trying to get the perfect question so you can get a whole story out of it. And I just said, well, Mr. President, I said, we've only been in your country for two weeks, and in that time period, three journalists have been thrown in jail. And I said, Rwanda's a tiny country, and if I can tell you if three journalists were thrown in jail for what they did, for what they reported in the United States, it would be a huge story. And here it's routine. And Human Rights Watch considers uh, Rwanda a very oppressive country. And Reporters Without Borders considers it one of the worst for press freedom. And I said, um, you know, basically, how do you want to respond to that or something like that? Right. And he took about 10 minutes. I, I secretly videotaped it, although it was out of focus. They said I couldn't videotape it, so I did. It's kind of what I do, but I have a camera, a regular Nikon camera, and you can't tell when you press the video button, you know, just sits there on your desk, but it was out of focus, and so I didn't get to use it, but um, he took 10 minutes, and he's a very charming man, he's very eloquent and very smart, and um, in a nutshell, what he basically said, which did make me think, is he basically said, look, you naive American, this is not Wisconsin. We have Congo next door. There's a million people waiting on across the border to over, they're waiting to overrun us. You know, you can come here and ask me about all your idealistic press freedom stuff. It doesn't apply here. Now he didn't say it that bluntly, but that's kind of, uh. Was he flustered by your question? No, not at all. And the thing is, is, uh, he was kind of irritated yeah. by it, kind of in a professorial way, not like, you know, I didn't think he was going to throw me in jail, but I mean, I just felt like, you know, he's kind of like, uh, and I, I, I have to admit, I, he kind of made me think like, yeah, maybe that was kind of a dumb question. I don't really know what oh, it's wow. like. So, so you, you bought his answer? No, I don't, I didn't buy it, but he made me think, you know, and so. Well, well, I guess more like you thought he would, do you think he believed his answer? Oh, I think he believes it. Yeah. Okay. But I still think it's not a it's not a good thing to do. I don't think it it justifies things, and you know, 
I probably won't get to go back into Rwanda <laughs> after because of that exchange. Well, and then I, what I've written since then. I mean, you know, I yeah. I think it's a fairly authoritarian country. Uh, it's not not bad. I mean, a lot of those countries are, and that's again, that's part of the missing story in the aid and development uh, uh, realm. Is like Kenya and Ethiopia. They have similar problems. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not people don't have the same kind of freedoms that we have and they need that yeah you can't have you can't succeed in aid and development if you also in my opinion if you don't also see improvements in basic human what we consider basic human freedoms and rwanda is certainly not the worst but it's since it's considered such a huge success story i think it's sort of i think that makes kagami and his government more accountable and uh but yeah no i didn't he didn't persuade me but it was a good answer i have to admit he's a very good politician mm-hmm. well he's been in power a long time yeah and then we're gonna had see a lot of practice we're gonna see if he runs again he says he's not but he may go for a third it, term all right right um and he, but that was probably in the recent memory that was most memorable i guess just because it was a fairly aggressive exchange and uh, and also I think Rwanda is a very interesting place it is a success story in many ways but it's also got these this this darker side to it I think and again that's what we should be doing we shouldn't be writing and and I, I should say on Rwanda you see two kinds of stories you see the stories that it's a horrible place mm-hmm. and Kagami's a horrible person and then you'll see the other stories that Rwanda is this wonderful, amazing success story that everybody, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, everybody thinks is the biggest shining bright star in Africa. And, you know, it's neat. It's, both of those are wrong. They're, they're too simplistic. It's a little bit of both. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we just, I just like to see everything covered, you know, a little bit more realistically. Africa's got a lot of really great things going on, a lot of really amazing, a lot of progress and stuff. And so we do need to do a good job and report on that, but we shouldn't overemphasize it if there's these other problems. That's all. Yeah. Well, and I know I said that that was going to be my last question, but as you're talking and uh, just in everything we've discussed through the interview, I think I've got to ask you, uh, you, you know, you're on Twitter a lot and you're obviously following blogs. And everything. If if you had to say a news source that is kind of maybe beyond the usual suspects that you think does a good job with some of these issues, or maybe um, captures some of the less reported angles, I'm curious, um, you know, who or or which um, publication you'd say is doing that. I, I guess I wouldn't want to limit it to one because, and I'm going to forget uh, forget somebody. But like I said, there's. Yeah. Some of the best information is not coming from news sources. It's coming from bloggers in the field, aid workers or academics. And I just, I could mention a whole bunch of them, but I won't. But I mean, so a lot of the best information with the best, most interesting news is not coming from news sources. So that's one thing I would mention. And then um, what I find, again, and maybe just my own peculiar views, what I where I find some of the more interesting stories. I mean, there's there's a lot of places that you see the main stories, and they're a good resource for the main stories. NPR's Global Health, or NPR in general, but NPR's Global Health, uh, uh, Beat, Global Post, 
you know, Guardian, you mentioned the Guardian. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, Interpress is also very good. Erin, which is, you know, a UN news source, but it's good. Um, I think they do a good job. Voice of America is also, I think, neglected in this country. They do a really good job reporting. Uh, Reuters, Thompson News Service, um, and then I think where I find some of the more interesting, and so those are good for basics, I think. Yeah. I'm forgetting, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but you know, those are good. And then, um, uh, where I find some of the more interesting stories are like, uh, do you know SciDevNet? Yes, I like them a lot. Yeah, I don't see a lot. That jump- and you know that they are funded by, uh, DFID. Yeah. Yeah, and- I, I didn't realize that till recently, actually. I know David Dixon a little bit, the editor, and, and they've always had a really unique approach to news, um, and it's slightly different maybe than what people think because they, they cover policy issues. They don't just say, hey, here's a new scientific thing. Right. So it's, uh, it's, it's, that's, I get some really interesting stories out of them. PRI's The World, of course, comes up with very interesting angles. On stories, and then uh, the uh, Center for Global Development, which is a think tank in D.C., is also very good for keeping up on things. If you can, I mean, they can be a little wonky in the way they write stuff, but um, they're very uh, they're very useful for for me for keeping tabs on what's going on. That's a good list. (laughs) Yeah, a lot, and it's I'm sure it's just a fraction. I look at a lot of different news resources that's the thing is i spend a lot of time well and i'm just going to say this if i if you can let me add one more thing is that sure you know what we do and i think it's it's also similar to what mark and tom do at you at uh, dawn's is you know i try to read through everything going on out there and um pick the best five or six things and then emphasize those on humanosphere and there isn't a lot of reward for given the structure of media now, uh, and what, what, you know, the way it's, the way you're rewarded is by doing original content, by putting out a lot of opinion and, you know, just getting and then putting it out on social media, Twitter or Facebook. And then you get a lot of hits and everything's judged by traffic. And for me to just read a story in SciDev.net or PRI or the world or NPR and just say, hey, this is a good story. That actually doesn't do me any good as a website. But what I'm trying to do at Humanosphere is become sort of a, a – uh, we're trying to become the place where it's a, the best combination of curation, which, like I said, doesn't necessarily benefit the site, but it's like a value for us, we're, we're picking the best stories or what we think are the best stories with, you know, some original content. And so the only reason I'm mentioning that is I think that, again, there's some problems within the current reward structure for the media that they're not necessarily producing the best stuff. They're the people who get the, the most hits are sometimes just ranting and raving. They're not actually providing a service for their readers. They're entertaining, <laughs> but but it's not necessarily uh, you know high quality information. So we're yeah. trying to both be entertaining and and have high quality information. <laughs>